Hey, this is Laura. I just talked to Ryan about how to get unstuck and make your speaking career limitless. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the World of Speakers podcast brought to you by Speaker Hub. In each episode, we interview a professional speaker and reveal their very best tips and tricks. You'll learn to improve your presentation skills, keep your audience engaged, and learn how to grow your business to get more gigs and make more money. Here's your host, Ryan Foland. Ahoy, everybody, and of course, we are back, and this time we have someone who is a confidence catalyst. She is somebody who gets people unstuck. Her name is Laura glasner Auding. Am I saying that correctly? Laura glasner Auding. Laura glasner Auding. Now, I like to start the show mispronouncing stuff, so the rest of the show, you're all prepped, and we can't be held accountable for it. But uh, That's all right. I always tell people I've been called worse. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm excited to have you here today. I've got your book sitting in front of me, which I've been diving into and through and carrying around with me. And I'm excited to learn more about you as a person, your tips as a speaker, and how you have successfully made a good kind of mess for yourself with all this traction around the topics that you're speaking on and sharing to the world. So welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So I'm assuming this is not something you were unfamiliar with as far as podcasts go, because when you get a book out, everybody wants to jump on and have you on the show. So I appreciate you letting us steal some of your time here. But before we dig into all of the nuggets of information you're going to deliver, I want to get everyone to know you a little bit more. And we do that through a single story of your past that you think by itself could represent who you are. I know it's a tall order, but can you think of a story off the shelf that gets us warmed up to what you're all about. Yeah, so I'll share a story that's not in the book because hopefully people will read the book after this and this will be like a special bonus for people that listen to this podcast. Um, When I was 22 years old, I worked in Bill Clinton's White House. That part is in the book. So that's not the big, that's not the big secret. But when I got there as as a volunteer, and I had been volunteering on the campaign. I dropped out of law school to join the campaign because I'd heard then-Governor Bill Clinton talking about this idea of community service in exchange for college tuition, and I thought, oh my God, that needs to happen, right? He had this whole impassioned speech that nothing that's wrong with America can't be fixed with what's right with America, and I was like, yes, I'm in. Nice. <laughs> so I dropped out of law school, I joined the campaign, and along the way, ended up meeting a guy who became the person who organized volunteers for the new administration. So I went to DC, I volunteer on the transition team, I went to the inauguration, I walked into the White House at 1201 on you know inauguration day, and I began doing data entry for the, the Office of National Service, which would later become the office that created and built AmeriCorps. I spent four weeks volunteering, doing data entry, hoping beyond hope that somebody would notice me, that I would get my shot, that somebody would see me, right? That was like the big, aha, please let it be moment. And then one day as I was walking out of the office, I saw a list for um, blood donations. And the guy who ran the office was a guy by the name of Eli Siegel. Now, Eli Siegel ran the 1992 presidential campaign, and he could have had any job he wanted when Bill Clinton was elected, including being like the ambassador to France. He could have had like the cushiest job in the world. But he was he was he madly in love with this idea of national service and always, uh, he just used to teach me, always bet on youth. And so his name was listed there as one of the four slots, and there was a fourth slot that was open. So I wrote my name down. <laughs> And I went to go donate blood next to Eli Siegel, thinking to myself, I will have a trapped audience for at least 15 (laughs) minutes to plead my case. Now, the thing about the story that's the sort of surprise twist is that I have this really 
unfortunate, unexciting medical condition called vasovago syncope, which basically means I pass out when I do things like <laughs> give blood. <laughs> Here's a brown bag. Yeah, it's not so good. I have very low blood pressure. So I get on the table next to him and we're told to squeeze a little red ball and I'm not squeezing it because I'm hoping if I just bleed slowly, then I won't have to get <laughs> up off the table before he does. And so we spend 15 minutes talking and he's like, my name's Eli. I'm like, "Ah, yeah, I know who you are. Like everybody in democratic politics knows who you are. But he was so humble and lovely. And we spent the entire time talking about how John Kennedy's Peace Corps was successful from the minute that it took off, announced in the Rose Garden and it was, everybody loved it. Whereas Lyndon Baines Johnson's War on Poverty was a failure from even before it, you know, was signed into law. And he wanted to know why, and he wanted to know if I could figure that out for him so that we didn't do the same thing with AmeriCorps. You know, small project, right? Not low yeah. stakes, not a big deal. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And then he finishes, he gets off the table. I finish, I get off the table, I proceed to pass out. <laughs> He's already gone by that point. <laughs> and then as I'm, I'm leaving, a guy in the office was like, you know, Eli's very busy and he's not going to be able to read that, that piece of research you do. You should give it to me and I'll summarize it for him and then I'll put a cover memo on it. Oh, okay. Thinking that seems legit. That's fine. Yeah, I'm a peon. Right. I'm a nobody. And then I walk a few more steps and a woman who works in the office like, you know what's going to happen, right? And I was like, no, yes, maybe. I don't know. I'm trying to act all sophisticated, even though I'd like just passed out and I was literally wearing my mother's suits with like the big giant Alexis Carrington, you know, shoulder pads in 1992. <laughs> and she's like, he's going to screw you. He's totally going to steal your work. And I was like, oh, well, what am I going to do? I'm kind of stuck. Like I have to do it. So she's like, no, here's what you're going to do. You're going to do the work. You're going to give it to him. But then you're also going to give it to Eli on the way out the door and say, you know, you're going to have this summarized for you, but I thought you like, might like the raw data. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. So then I went home and I did the research and I gave him the report a couple of days later. And then I cried into my ramen soup, which was the only thing that I could afford <laughs> at that moment <laughs> because I was a volunteer. I wasn't making any money. And I thought I'm going to get fired from the job I don't even yet have. And then the <laughs> next day I walked into the office and Eli was like, so I heard you, um, I heard you passed out. Oh, and by the way, <laughs> we're going to put you on payroll. <laughs> So that's how I got my first job working in the White House. <laughs> okay. So from that, I understand you to be brave beyond your own biological ability. <laughs> yes. I am stupid beyond my own biological. Um, I am the person who jumps out of the airplane and then goes, wait, was there a parachute in that backpack? I am, um, I believe firmly that there is an adventure around every corner if you just look hard enough. And I also believe firmly that failure is never finale. It's only fulcrum. And that I do write about in the book. I was giving a talk in Austin at Renaissance Weekend a couple months ago, and I was talking about how failure is not finale. And I look to the left and there's Commander Tim Copra of NASA. And Commander Tim Copra of NASA has been on three spacewalks. And I was like, so for you, sir, <laughs> failure is most definitely finale. But for the rest of us walking around on terra firma, as long as there is breath in your body, we can grow and we can learn and we can change from failure. So I am just somebody who has always believed that 
there's never a dead end. There's never an end of the road. And if the road ends, it's just because you're on the wrong road. And that U-turns and left turns and right turns are what make us interesting human beings. And frankly, what make us compelling on stage. Huh. It's like, it made me think of a cul-de-sac. Like every dead end is really cul-de-sac. You just keep walking all of a sudden, it kind of forces you on the turn back. Totally. Absolutely. And, you know, some of us have better turning radius than others, right? Some of us kind of (laughs) like pop a tire on the sidewalk and some of us go smoothly through and it looks like it was planned. But on the 50 some odd podcasts I've done in the last six weeks in the book launch, I've gotten so many people, they're like, well, you've had this great strategic career. Tell us about the smart moves you've made to make sure that you're exactly where you need to be. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I mean, I literally rolled my eyes when Hoda on the Today Show said, you look like you got your shit together. And I was like, no, not at all. <laughs> like, you're like, it's a result of stupidity and bravery. We call it maybe stu-bravery. Stu- it's stu- moxie, baby. It is moxie. moxie. That's it. <laughs> I love that word. That is a great one. Yes. But I do like in 20 years of doing executive recruiting for people at the top of their game, people who on paper look like they were just 100% firing on all cylinders all the time. What I learned was that it was the U-turns and the left turns and the right turns and the cult cul-de-sacs that made for the most interesting people and made for the best leaders because they're the ones who understood how hard decisions get made. Hmm. Now, sort of a step backwards into what drew you to drop your law books and run towards the White House. Has there always been this like passionate nonprofit person within you? Was that something that you were raised with? Were your family super altruistic and philanthropic? How did, how did you get that bug? So my mother was a city councilwoman when I was growing up in Miami, and my father was a physician. So they were in the helping professions. And I think that that probably was, you know, part of how I was shaped. I also came from, you know, my great-grandparents all came here, you know, through Ellis Island on boats and escaping for a better future. And, you know, I think there is something about the idea of community that immigrants bring with them that it makes it hard to ignore other people around you. Um, Mm. It's funny though, because when I was in high school, I skipped kindergarten. And so I was the youngest in my high school class. And my father was a Republican. My mother was a Democrat. Is They both still are alive and still retain these political leanings. And amazingly, (laughs) are still married (laughs) very happily, which is after 50 years, pretty great. But, you know, the Reagan Republicans would probably be considered Democrats today. And the the Carter Democrats were like so far out to the left at this point. I mean, everybody sort of moved. But it really became a matter of, do you put social priorities above financial priorities or financial priorities above social priorities? And my parents really agreed about, I'd say 80% of the stuff in the middle. It was just where they prioritized it that was different. But the stuff that they agreed upon was that those who have more have a responsibility in some way to take care of those who have less. And it was a question of whether that taking care of was a handout or a hand up. But it was still an expectation that we, I grew up with an enormous amount of privilege. You know, I'm Caucasian, I'm straight, I have two parents with college and beyond education, still married, living under one roof. I mean, right there, I'm already starting the marathon at mile 10. Right. So I think there was this idea that there was a lot that was expected of us because we were given so much. Yeah. Did you have a big family? You say us. So how many brothers and sisters do you have? Just one. I had an older sister who was 16 months older than me. And then my older cousin actually moved into our house in high school and grew up with us. So I, I have I have one biological sister, but really two sisters. 
Gotcha. Now, were you the type of person as a kid that you could have easily looked back and said, oh, there's no doubt that I would have ended up on stage using my voice to, to communicate <laughs> what I've written. You know, sometimes we know, sometimes we don't. But was there any early indications? Not even a thread. No, <laughs> no. Um, I think that, again, I could look back right now and say like, oh, well, when I was in a high school debate, it was really clear that, no, none of it was clear. I mean, I, <laughs> I am the most accidental speaker you will ever find. In fact, went to law school because I thought I was going to run for office. I thought I was going to be the first U.S the first female senator from the great state of Florida, right? Grew up in Miami. I thought that that was going to be it. P.S. There still have not been any female senators from the great state of Florida. So, you know. There's still a spot ready for you. There's still a spot. I could go back at any time. It would be the biggest carpetbagging move ever. (laughs) I haven't lived in Florida in 30 years, but there is still time. I thought that that's what I was going to do because when I was growing up, the people who were leaders were elected officials. That seemed like that's what I would do. And when I got to law school, I realized that I didn't want to be a lawyer. And in fact, I shifted my focus from asking this question of how can I help? How can I be the solution to what needs to happen? How do we get the right people in the right places so that you know the right things happen? And it was like a lightning bolt moment. I was in law school and I did not want to be there. And so I did what anybody does in a moment of like self-loathing. I dated somebody who was terrible for me. <laughs> and I dated this guy who drove an IROC Z. Right? <laughs> that tells you right there a little bit about him. Apologies to any of your listeners who drive or did drive. No, no, they're, they're not offended. They had a good giggle regardless. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they had a good going on for a while while they were you know listening to their to their hair metal. They were doing all right. <laughs> and this guy was adorable, right? He was you know exactly the guy you would picture in the IROC Z. I used to ride my bike to campus and uh, one day it was raining and he was like, oh, well, I'll give you a ride home. We'll stick your car, your bike in the back of my, my car <laughs> and my high rock. And I just want to stop by this guy's office. He's running for president. And I said, governor who? From where? <laughs> Not a chance, right? At that point, George H.W. Bush had just won Desert Storm. He had like a 91% approval rating. Nobody had heard of this, you know, unknown young governor from this, you know, tiny state of Arkansas. Like there was not a chance he was going to win. And it was before the internet. So if you wanted to get information for somebody running for office, you would literally have to go to like their local headquarters in some local strip mall. And so that's what we did. We walk into the strip mall office and there in the corner is this little teeny black and white TV, like an eight inch TV with then brown haired Bill Clinton giving this impassioned talk about service. And it was like in that moment, this lightning bolt hit me and I said, that needs to happen. We need to get him elected. How can we get him elected? And I started volunteering on the campaign. And the next thing I knew, I was traveling all over the country, eating cold pizza and, you know, sleeping on high school gymnasium floors and putting on rallies for 36,000 people, you know, having landed in the city three days earlier. And that got the attention of the national office. And, you know, they offered me a great gig with like all the ramen you can eat and all the idealism you can stomach. And I, that's, I did (laughs) political advance. Um, And I loved it. I thought it was great. I, in that heartbeat moment, went from saying, I'm going to be in the spotlight to what I really want to do is put the right people in the right position so that they can make change happen. And I gave this, I gave my TEDx about this, you know, 30 years later about this idea of asking different questions so we can really solve problems. And I ended up in the White House, worked there for four years, helped create AmeriCorps, pretty amazing experience the biggest yada, yada, yada of any story I'd ever tell, but yada, 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 four years goes by and I turn to Eli and I say, well, 
I'm ready to go back on the campaign trail and get Bill reelected. And he says, well, now you're too old to eat cold pizza and sleep on high school gymnasium <laughs> floors. And you should talk to my friend, Arnie Miller, who runs Isaacson Miller, the biggest search firms in the country that does specifically nonprofit work. And you can hide out in a nonprofit for four years and then come back and do something big on the Gore campaign. And I said, great. Five days later, I sat down with Arnie and uh, he said, you don't want to work in a nonprofit. You want to come work for me. I'll teach you everything you need to know about leadership. And I went, okay, your job's in Boston. The boy I'm dating now, who by the way, doesn't drive an IROC-Z, <laughs> is going to be moving to Boston. I'll take the job. What do you do? <laughs> and so I became a headhunter. I spent four years working for him, learning from the best and the brightest how to do this work. And then I had this moment of rage where I realized I wasn't part of the solution that there was a better and smarter and more profitable and more integrity and more authenticity filled way to do the work. And once I realized I wasn't part of the solution, that only left me in the camp of being part of the problem. And so I launched my own firm, spent 15 years running that. And again, putting the right people in the right places. I was so happy on stage left. In fact, I do a ton of political fundraising, there's a picture of me standing stage left with our congressperson in the distance blurry, and you can see me in stark relief. And I'm just so full of joy that she's just killing it on stage. Like That's where I love to be. But then I sold that firm to my team. And about a few weeks later, in this moment, this crisis of identity that I had, where I didn't know who I was when I was no longer handing over my business card, I'm Laura Gassner-Odding, CEO of this thing. Who yeah. am I? I just started blogging. I would just write stuff on, on I just, lauragastnerotting.com. And I started putting blog posts up. And Tamsin Webster, who was the executive producer of TEDx Cambridge, who I happened to know because my son, who at the time was 13, four years earlier when he was nine, did a TEDx talk for her, which we can also talk about. Wow. She says to me, you know, I read that recent blog post you wrote about solving big problems and asking the right questions. You should consider doing a TEDx. And I went, no effing way. Uh -uh. No way. That terrifies me. I hang up the phone. And my older son says, hey, mom, <laughs> don't you always tell me I should do things that scare me? Ooh. And uh, don't you always tell me that if it doesn't challenge me, it doesn't change me? And uh, don't you always tell me that life starts on the other side of the fear? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And he goes, so what gives, mom? Wah, wah. Six weeks later, I'm on the TEDx stage, no notes, no net, 11 and a half minutes that I crushed. Not and then yet. three seconds that I forgot what I was going to say next. And then 28 seconds that were pretty good. <laughs> I <gave> a TEDx. <laughs> and then that got some attention, which led people to call me and offer me money to come speak for their audiences. And I was like, wait, what? This is a job? <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? Thank you, son, for pushing me where the fear starts and the money starts to uh, to boil over. So there you go. So I don't know. I don't know how you. I don't know how you combine those stories of like brave beyond my physical ability and wait, what? <laughs> this is a job. But you know, I think that sometimes you like you do have to do the thing that scares you because I do think that if your goals don't maybe make you just a little bit nauseated, they're not big enough. I like that. And one of the things you'd, you'd mentioned just, you know, prior to is the fact that this is some sort of an accident. And it's, and I almost think looking and listening, it's like a calculated accident because you're putting yourself in these situations. You sort of take two steps forward and you take these 
these little steps in a direction and then you're still your eyes are open your ears are open whether it's a nine inch tv screen or not you're still like on the prowl so i would love to know tips from an accidental speaker when it comes to speaking because i believe that you probably have some of the best advice because you're not you know classically trained since you were three years old to do this and that's inspiring for people who accidentally stumble upon what might be an opportunity to take advantage of the stage so what would be your advice as an accidental speaker as part of this process, looking back retrospectively? Oh boy. I think that what I got wrong in the beginning was thinking that the way people speak on the TEDx stage was the way that you speak. Okay. Like I thought that that was how super accomplished people spoke and it was earnest and didactic and it was, you know, I'm going to tell you the story. And I thought that that's like that voice was success. And what I have come to learn is that there is a difference between speaking and performing. That speaking can be lots of things, right? It can be teaching, it can be workshops, it can be standing behind a lectern, it could be standing behind a podium, that you're basically reading a script, you're speaking, you're up there, and maybe you've got it memorized, maybe you're just sort of talking. But there's a the, the chasm between that and performing, which is like getting on stage and leaving it all out there, like bringing an audience through an emotional experience with you, where you you shock them, you delight them, you surprise them, you entertain them, you scare them, you thrill them. Like all of that is such a different thing, and that demands such a level of commitment and vulnerability that is exhausting. I, I wear like a, a fitness band on stage and sometimes I'll look at like, I'll get off stage and I'll get like a little buzz on my phone. That'll be like, you've tracked a workout <laughs> because it automatically tracks when my heart rate's elevated for more than 15 minutes. And a lot of that is like purposefully moving around the stage and waiting for the bits. When I would watch the TEDx, you see them speaking at this rate. That's very slow. And you're like, okay, well, that must be the way people speak. And it turns out that when I speak like that, I just sound boring. Right? Like that's <laughs> not that interesting to listen to for 45 minutes. And it's not that emotional. But when I speak with the passion and the verb and the zest and the moxie that I have, it's hard for people to keep up with the torrent of words coming out of my mouth if I don't commit to the pauses. So I can speak just as fast as I normally speak cocktail conversation me is much better on stage than college classroom me. When I speak at the rate that I speak, but then I give people pauses to catch up, it's much more effective. And so the biggest tip that I would give new speakers is not to watch a whole bunch of TED Talks, but to actually watch stand-up comedy. Because hmm. in stand-up comedy, they have to commit to the bit. And they have to use pauses and they have to speak in a conversational and casual tone of voice. And they have to drop in little lines throughout that seem like little throwaway lines, but then they call back to them later in ways that you feel like you're in on the joke. And when you're in on the joke, you really want to be part of it. You really want to like take whatever the speaker's saying and bring it into your life because you were part of a secret and everybody wants to be part of something. So yeah. stand up comedy to me has taught me an incredible amount of how to just get on stage and how to just live into my story and be fully into it and be goofy and be vulnerable and, and pause and wait. And then after I've said a laugh line, 
turn my head a little way and make a face and get another laugh line and then turn back the other way and make a side comment and get a third laugh line. And how do you get, you know, the continued, the first, the second, the third out of each one point? That's all stuff from stand-up comedy. It sounds like the the combination between patience and persistence. You've got this, you know, that timing is a huge part of comedy. And I don't think that we often make the same type of importance on that timing when it comes to the stage. I, I'm a big fan of the pause. My fourth TEDx talk, I talked all about the pause, whether it's in a regular conversation or not. Because just like you're talking with someone, you have to allow the space for people to think. And sometimes that pause is scary. So people just jam right through it and it becomes 45 minutes of a long monologue. There is nothing louder than the deafening silence of 3,000 people waiting for your next word. <laughs> The sound of that, you can hear them breathing. You hear your steps across the stage. You hear the clatter of your earring against the countryman mic. You hear the, like, somebody gets a text, ding. <laughs> like, it's, and you hear the tape recorder in the back of your own head going, why is that person looking at me? Why is that person standing up? Are they going to the bathroom or are they leaving, right? There's so much that's happening in the silence of you walking from one end of that tiny little red dot to the other end of that tiny little red dot to go from the space where you talk about problems to the space where you talk about solutions. <laughs> and I swear I've never heard anything as loud as that silence. Yeah. Could you share some insights to some of your preparation process, either when it's, you know, right before you're going on stage, how you get into the right mental attitude, or even from the preparation? Are you more of a impromptu off the cuff or just since you know everything, you know, so intensely, you just, are you just taking chapters from your book? How do you formulate that prep process? Well, so it's interesting. I just spoke at three events in Canada at the Art of Leadership for Women, um, Calgary, Vancouver, and Toronto. And there were five speakers and four of us, 45 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, following each other, then a 15 minute break. And then the big headliner, which in two of them was Malala and one was Robin Roberts. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. don't screw up, right? <laughs> and uh, in fact, when the organizer asked me to be part, I was like, oh, that's great. And then like two weeks later, he's like, good news, Malala signed on as the keynote. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> what am I going to do? And I called my speaking coaches, Michael and Amy Port from Heroic Public Speaking. And I was like, we got to get me real better real fast <laughs> because Malala don't play, right? <laughs> We yeah. got to get this right. My game is going to be stepped up whether I like it or not. So let's yeah. get on the Stairmaster. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't open for Malala and Robin Roberts without being, you know, legit. Yeah. So I decided to do slides for the first time in my life. And I wow. debuted the slides in Switzerland two weeks earlier at this university conference where I was asked to speak and my slides didn't work. So that was terrifying. And afterwards, a guy came up to me and he was like, that was amazing. He's like, you had all those technical difficulties, your slides didn't work. And then you just kept on going as if you didn't need them. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, I normally don't use them. <laughs> <So> right. <laughs> I looked amazing. <laughs> That's because the slides didn't work. So the first time I used the slides for real was in front of 2000 people in Calgary. So sort of terrifying, but I was 
pretty good in that talk. I mean, I give myself like a B plus. I think I would look back five years from now and be like, oh, that was definitely like a solid C. But for what I know and what I'm capable of doing right now, you know, I got like a lot of applause. People were pretty happy. I got a bunch of applause lines throughout. It was good. And you're grading on the curve too. So like, you know, you're you're good. Totally, totally. (laughs) And it was interesting because what I found was that I was a little bit nervous about what slide was coming next because I didn't know you could put it in presenter mode. You said you could actually see what was coming next. And then the next day in Vancouver, once I was more comfortable with it, I had a little bit more courage to be a little more off the cuff in my stories. So my stories, you know, I tell stories, as you can tell, like I'm, you know, lively and I'm funny and I, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about making a fool of myself on stage because we're all fools at some point, right? Like that's part of, part of getting people to buy into my message of, of living a limitless life is to show them that you can be vulnerable and that you're not perfect. So it actually works out well when, when I like make sort of a side joke. And what I found was that by using the slides as punchlines, I was able to be much more physical and being much more physical allowed me to live in my body more and be freer and open and like a little bit more of me than I would normally be. And it's not the whole like, you know, you got to be authentic on stage. But I think we all have a milieu in which we're good. Like some people are more didactic and that's their thing. They get up and they talk about case studies. Some people show slides and they, you know, talk about a bunch of, you know, scientific stuff. My slides are big, bright pictures or they're black slides with one word on them. I mean, there's not a lot of text. I mean, in the 45 minute talk, I think there's like 30 words total. You're you're not killing your audience members by death by PowerPoint is what you're saying. Well, I mean, they can't read the PowerPoint and still listen to you. And I've got a huge ego. I want them to keep listening to me. It's just, that's, I'm on stage. It's Beyonce. Come on. Um, So I want them to pay attention to me. But so what I found about that, which was interesting and which relates back to your question is that what I learned is that I am not a script person. I am not the person who's going to walk three steps over here and nail this line and then walk five steps over there. And then this is the word that I'm going to emphasize. I really know the arc of my story and like an accordion, I can expand it or reduce it. Before I got on stage in Vancouver, they were running about seven minutes behind. And I was like, well, I'm supposed to speak for 45 minutes. Do you want me to go 38? And the guy was like, can you? And I was like, yes, I'm a professional. <laughs> That's right. what we do. So I just took a story out. And the, yeah. the whole thing still works perfectly fine. It just doesn't have that one story. And if I need to expand it, I put an extra story in or whatever they need me to do. And so for me, what I, what I find is that I am most confident on stage when I know the bones and the outline of my talk. Here's the hook. Here's the common problem that we want to solve. Here's where you think is getting in your way, but really actually it's this. Now here's you know the big idea that you can't shake, right? This is Tamsin Webster's red thread. It's, it follows that idea. And then inside of each one of them, I can just tell stories. Like I know when I get up there and I say, well, so the problem is that we're you know listening to all these other people and we need to screw the Joneses. And then rather than saying, and by screw the Joneses, here's what I mean. I just say, we need to screw the Joneses. And then I walk over to the other side of the stage and I say, my job puts me on the road a lot. And I just go right into the story of that. But I've dropped all of the transitions in between the stories because that feels like a lecture as opposed to taking somebody on this journey with you. Yeah. I've heard somebody say once, people don't care about your story. They care about how they see themselves in your story. And when you are storytelling, you're giving people a chance to be part of it and relate to it as opposed to just factually doing the fact, fact, fact. Absolutely. So I used to tell the story in a way where I would say, 
on the first day of school, my children were bickering with each other so much. They didn't let me get that one important picture, you know, the proof that I'm the best mother in the world, the first day of school photo. <laughs> and then I would say, and so here's what I did. I'd say that. And then I stop and I look around and I go, you know, you've got that picture. Those matching outfits are amazing, aren't they? And people laugh. And so I like, I stop and I interact in a way where the audience is like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. I know that picture. Right. Like they can see themselves in it. Whereas if you just talk and tell them, they don't get a chance to see it themselves. You know, I'm, this is the pause. It's a two-way conversation. Their part's just silent. And you have to give them time to say their part and also to imagine it and to see themselves in it. And I think the stand-up comedy has helped me to learn how to allow people to find their own purchase in each of the stories in a way where they're like, yes, that's right. Finding their own purchase, that's great. I like how we've gone from passing out in giving blood to <laughs> the exact opposite where you are nothing but energized and, and the furthest person in the room from passing out because you've got people engaging on what you're saying and how you're saying it. So I, I want to now take a step back to the bigger picture because you've got these opportunities like this TEDx talk and you were speaking in Switzerland and then you're in Canada for your own experience, how have you best found the ability to have these opportunities on stage? Is there, is it really a method or is it another sort of accidental combination? Is it with your book? You know, how would you see your overall success in getting these stages, especially just even recently? What is your secret or your method behind your accidental madness, maybe? Yeah, I would say that, I would say that, well, I will tell you. So last week, Robin Roberts tweeted about my book. You saw this. She tweeted about it. I put on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, at everywhere to like millions of people. And I picked my 14-year-old son up that afternoon. And I feel exceptionally cool because my 14-year-old son follows me on social media. I feel like that <laughs> any success I have in my life, the fact that a 14-year-old is actually following me on social media and a 14-year-old is related to me, that's pretty much, I mean, I, I could be under the oak tree with Oprah and this will be the pinnacle of my success. Like, yeah, who, just, who cares that you didn't get that big picture, the, the first picture, like the fact that your son is now following you, that means you're the coolest mom ever. You're good. I mean, I'm good, right? So we, we get in the car and he's like, Mike, that was kind of a big deal, huh? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, that was like, I didn't like, I didn't ask her. That wasn't like nobody, like she just got the book from the MC of the event and read it and liked it and posted it. I mean, that was crazy. And he's like, you do realize that there are a lot of other books that are better than yours, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And he, I, he, he said, he goes, like, I know that you're working really hard, like you're busting your butt to be in all these opportunities, but you know that there are other authors who have written better books who are busting their butt just as much and you've gotten lucky. And, and he's right. Like there is nothing about my book that's so incredibly special. And there's nothing about what I'm doing that's so incredibly special, but it's a combination of both plus a zeitgeist moment where I think people are really thinking about purpose and meaning and, you know, what is it all, you know, is this all I meant for, you know, in this moment of like angst that we're having in, in this country and in the world, where we're thinking about our values and what we stand for. And so I think there's that. And then I think you make your own luck. You know, I think it's things like being on the stage and saying to the MC, do you want me to go eight minutes less so that you can get this time back? And him saying, oh my God, thank you so much. And then being willing to give my inscribed book to Robin Roberts when she gets off stage, right? It's, it's showing up. My publicist said, you know, we've never seen a grassroots campaign like yours, a street team campaign like yours that's been so successful. What did you do? And I said, I think I just showed up for people for the last 48 years of my life. And 
when I asked them for something, they showed up back. I, I mean, I think that's part of what it is. And so along the same lines with speaking, I looked to people who I deeply, deeply respected. And I said, tell me how you did it. Who are you? Where did you get to? Who did you know? Who can you introduce me to? What am I doing wrong? There's a woman named Carrie Lawrence, who was the U.S. Navy's first F-14 Tom, female F-14 Tomcat fighter pilot. Incredible, badass, wrote a book on which she is standing in a leather dress, beautiful woman called Fearless Leadership. I mean, you think I have moxie? She is moxie. <laughs> I reached out to her and I was like, would it like you and I happen to sort of kind of know each other through this group of speakers? Is there any way you might blurb my book? And she said, sure. Like within two minutes, I was floored. She calls me up three days later. She's like, can we talk about your book? And then she proceeds to hand me my ass in the nicest possible way, telling me my book is really good, but it's not really great. And I'm too smart for it just to be good. Wow. And then proceeds to spend 45 minutes on the phone with me, helping me figure out exactly what's wrong so that it was great. And so I think it's listening to other people who have walked in the path and who know and who can say things like, if this is what you want this book to do for you, then it's only good. It's not great. And if you want it to do that for you, it's got to be great. So, you know, I became a student. Like, I once I did that TEDx talk and then I got offered to be flown somewhere and be paid money to speak. I was like, well, if I'm going to be a professional, I better be a professional, right? So I paid for training. I went to heroic public speaking. I sat with great speakers that we know, like Scott Stratton and Ron Tite and Mitch Joel and, and Carrie Lorenz and Allison Levine and really listened to them and watched them, you know, like studied them, not just, not the content, but the way that they did the work. And then I spent time unpacking with them. Well, you did this here and you went there and then you walked over to here. How did you, why did you do that? And in doing that, I not only raised my game to learn how to do it better, they also believed in me and saw that I wasn't just about, I want to get the laugh line right, I want to get the bit right, but I actually care about getting the, the subject matter right. And because of that, they felt comfortable introducing me to their friends and people who were organizing conferences and their speaking agents and their bureaus because they knew that I was real. You know, I had somebody about a week after the book came out who tattooed the cover art of the book on her arm because she believed so much in the mission that she wanted to remember it every single day. Wow. That's insane, right? That's crazy. And that to me told me so much that it's not just that we we have to get you know, the laugh lines and the bits and the callbacks and the, you know, all the, the performance stuff, right? We have to get our subject matter right too, because people are really listening to what we have to say and they're changing their lives based on it. They're quitting their jobs, they're divorcing their spouses, they are launching new businesses, they're traveling around the world, they're making changes based on the things that we say and we have to get it right. And I think having not just sitting behind my computer and having, you know, making social media connections, but actually really taking the time to, if I'm in a city where I know that somebody lives, who's a speaker, reaching out to them and sitting down and talking to them and them really seeing how seriously I take this allowed them to say, yeah, I'm not alone because the speaking world is so lonely. You know, we're on the road all the time. We're basically, you know, we're basically CEOs of our own businesses and, and we're by ourselves and to have um, a compatriot, I think really helps develop those relationships. And I think relationships is what this business is all about. And what's nice about that is it's attainable for those who take it that seriously and make those moves. And I've talked with a number of people that ask the same question, how do I get more stage time? 
And oftentimes the answer includes building those key relationships. One thing that I've I've had people ask follow-up questions to is, well, how do you find the bravery or, or how do you approach these people? Sometimes they feel like they're untouchable. So do you have any advice for people who want to say reach out to you or want to reach out to somebody else, but they don't necessarily know you, they don't have a connection, they haven't trained with you? Do you have any tips on outreach? Like ideally, if someone were to do X, Y, Z, what would get your attention? What would come across as authentic? Yeah, it's such a good question. I all the time on stage tell people to reach out to me and I'll speak in front of thousands of people and maybe one will reach out to me. And it's so interesting because I'm like, I'm literally asking you to go me and people don't. By the way, anybody who's listening, I'm on all the socials at Hey LGO, H-E-Y-L-G-O, please reach out to me. And I'll be surprised if people do, but I would love it. It's sort of along the lines of when somebody comes up to you after you speak and they're like, would you please, could you, could you maybe, like, would you sign my book? And you're like, you're asking me to sign it? Like you bought my book? Like, yes, I'd right. love to sign your book. I'd be honored to sign your book. So ask, right? When I was looking for blurbs for my book, I was so interested that the A-listers that I went to were like, yeah, I'll take a look at it. And the B-listers were like, oh no, I'm so busy. I couldn't possibly. And I talked (laughs) to a friend of mine and I was like, God, it's so fascinating that the A-listers have been so warm. And he said, well, how do you think they got to be (laughs) A-listers? I was like, oh, that's really good. So I think, you know, I'm I'm excited about your book. I hope that makes me an (laughs) A-lister. I don't really know, but I, I think that just approach them. Like what's the worst that can happen? Someone will say no, like it doesn't cost you anything. Your parents aren't going to light on fire. Nobody's going to see. It's not like you're going to be showing up to third grade, you know, without your underwear. Like it's, you will be fine. If somebody says no, it will not be the worst thing. An amazing Ted talk by a guy named Jia Zhang. J-I-A-J-I-A-N-G, Jia Zhang, is all about rejection. And he talks about how for a hundred days straight, he put himself in a position where he would know that he would be rejected. Like he'd go to McDonald's and he'd get a Big Mac and a Coke and he would go up afterwards and he's like, I'm refilling my Coke. Can I get a refill on my Big Mac too? And they were like, uh, <laughs> that's not how it works. Or he'd go up to random strangers and ask them to borrow a hundred dollars. But like the idea that rejection is not actually gonna kill you is a really wonderful thing for speakers to learn because there's a lot of rejection in speaking. So that's the first thing is like, just ask. But the second is one of the things that I did early on is I got myself on any stage I could possibly get myself on, especially if I, you know, was, especially if it was like a pretty stage and I found local camera crews and I hired them to film me. And here's the thing. People are like, oh, I'm not ready yet. My talk's not ready. It's not perfect. I can't have people film me. I'm not ready for a sizzle reel. And what I would say is your sizzle reel is not your talk. It's just a whole bunch of edits of snippets of your talk. So you don't actually have to have a good talk. You just have to have like six or seven or eight snippets that you can nail in different outfits and you'll be golden. And if you can do something like that, you can put together the beginnings of a sizzle reel that you can then send to people. And it will have some information about who you are, the content that you speak about, and you'll look super legit. Like I've only been speaking for a few years and people think I've been in this game for 20 years because I look legit. And I look legit because I would go to places to speak where they'd ask me to speak once before lunch and once after lunch. And in between, I changed my outfit. Nice. So I looked like I was at two different speaking events. Right. But you gotta like, you gotta like smoke and mirrors your way to looking like you've been on bigger stages 
to get on bigger stages. It's like it's like when I wanted to be a babysitter when I was 11 and people say, well, have you had any experience? I'm like, well, no, because you haven't hired me yet. If you hire me, I'll have some experience and right. then you can hire me as somebody who's experienced. But I think you have to kind of fake it a little bit with the stages you've been on in order to get yourself on, you know, to speak for free and to invest some money early on in getting that recorded. Film, film, film. Yeah, and I don't even see it as really being fake. I see it as just being smart about documenting earlier than you would ever think. And it is one of the hardest things to get a good picture of you speaking on stage because if you think about it, you're talking and like 99% of your mouth movements make you look like just like weird. <laughs> so totally. the more at bats and like just documenting that process, even somebody who's a friend with a cell phone, um, I love this idea of, of documenting, changing outfits, maximizing the stage time that you get because it is, it's a total catch 22. Nobody wants to hire yeah. you unless they see you on a big stage, but it's hard to get on the big stages <laughs> if you haven't been there. Right. And here's the thing. I mean, I've seen people who are making the most ridiculous faces on stage. And these are people who have speak in front of tens of thousands of people every week. And what I see them do on social media is they'll post a picture of themselves making a ridiculous face and they'll be like, caption this contest. Ah. And what does that show you? It's like, oh, he's on lots of stages. You don't think, oh, look at the weird face he's making. Nobody thinks that. They think, oh, that's hilarious. He's so accomplished that he can laugh at himself. Yes. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, if we were to wrap it all up, the inability to laugh at yourself, and if you take yourself too seriously, you're going to get stuck on that that stupid plus bravery standpoint, as opposed to just like understanding that you do have a limitless amount of opportunity, case in point, your book, which really just kind of breaks down these different core components that you have to sit and look at. And I think that you know, the, the principles you talk about in your book, I think can very much be applied. You could probably slap a, 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 a the word speaker underneath it, limitless speaker. And then there's your, <laughs> then the next book. There's your next <laughs> book. Yeah. Well, Hey Laura, this has been refreshing because it's, it's really sometimes the best advice that's staring us right in the face that we need somebody to explain. Look, look, it's right there. Like if you're looking for your keys and you look everywhere, but they're right in front of you. So what's your tip to call someone? call them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And sometimes that's all I need. So for those people that are in the audience and the speaker legitimately says, reach out to me, their email is there for a reason. Ask them a question, compliment them on their talk. Just start that conversation because otherwise it's just like not capturing video or images of the presentation that you gave. If it doesn't even start, will it even exist, right? You got to start it. Right. And if you get bad video, so you can still use that to watch film after, right? Yeah. You can watch what you didn't. And, and I find that sometimes I come up with lines and I say things differently because the way I write the talk and the way I speak the talk are two totally different things. And I'll be like, oh, that really worked, but I don't remember what I said. But if you have it recorded, you can go back and capture it. Totally. All worthwhile stuff. Well, I believe these are all things that help you get unstuck and I see why they call you the confidence catalyst. So you'd mentioned your handle online. Tell people one more time where to find you and then where they can get your book. And then we're going to wrap this thing up and go out there and get unstuck from what's sticking us. Yeah. So people can find me on all the socials at Hey L-G-O, H-E-Y-L-G-O. I'm at HeyLGO.com. I like to keep it really simple. What is hey, What is the Hey L-G-O? Is it like, Hey, let go? Or like, what is the... No, my Laura Gassner outing. It's just my initials. It's like, Hey, <laughs> and people have always called me L-G-O. So it's like, Hey, L-G-O. Got it. Okay. Hey, L-G-O. Hey, L-G-O. It. Gotcha. Um, pretty easy. Yeah. My friends call me LGO. And it's funny because in my Amazon reviews, you'll see people that are like LGO, blah, 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 blah. And these are people I don't even know. So it's like, 
it's just, it's becoming a thing now. I'm just going to be like Madonna. Well, if you <laughs> don't LGO. know LGO, now you know, yo, we got it. Yeah, exactly. You got it. And the book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 800 CEO Reads, and anywhere fine books are sold. Love it. Well, hey, this has been a lot of fun. And it just, again, reinforces that you don't have to get stuck. It's probably you that's stuck. You just got to unstick yourself and realize that, there's limitless amounts of possibility out there, especially from the stage. So Laura, from all of the world of speakers, on behalf of everyone listening, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. This was great. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, if you like this episode, which I'm sure you will, here's your chance. Did you like it? You can review it. You can reach out to Laura and say, hey, great job. You can tweet us up. You can communicate. This is your chance to actually do something (laughs) and leave a review if you like it follow us where it is to be followed and hey this has been fun so for all of you out there next time you're getting blood or next time that you have the moment of your life in front of you just draw the blood squeeze the ball if you pass out you'll still wake up (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks laura we'll talk to you soon thank you 